This is One Heat Minute. Drop of a hat, these guys will rock and roll. What's your name? Wayne Grove. Look like gangbangers working the local 7-Eleven. Robbery homicides take me. Give me all you got! Listen. Give me all you got! I do what I do best. I take scores. You do what you do best. I'm trying to stop guys like me. A podcast dedicated to all 170 minutes of Michael Mann's LA crime opus Heat, one minute at a time. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to One Heat Minute. I'm your host, Blake Howard, and joining me for the 120th episode of this insane undertaking is not Manola Dargis. I have to call that out to begin with because every 30 <laughs> and 60 and 89, she just missed the 90th episode, has been Manola Dargis. But thank you, Manola. Um, uh, the baton has been handed on to uh, uh, someone who, uh, 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 in his words, when we were just catching up before... Um, kicking off the recording, said, you know, when he heard about this podcast, it hit him in the fiber of his being, and then we just we started t- touching base and, and 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 getting in touch and sort of um, corresponding back and forth over the internet. And I thought, well, this is essential. This man has to be on the show um, today. I'm <laughs> talking. You. I'm talking to Doug Holm. Um, he's a movie reviewer, a columnist, a broadcaster, and an author, and particularly um, of interest to to the Heat, um, to the Heat geeks, Pocket Essentials, Quentin Tarantino, um, and and also Kill Bill, an unofficial case book, Film Soleil, um, the Pocket Essentials, and people know here, um, uh, you know, they're, they're the... Uh, the public, the, the same publication that did the great LA Confidential um, uh, movie essentials book, as well as um, mm-hmm. the Heat movie essentials book, written by Nick James and uh, LA Confidential, oh, yeah. by the lovely Manola Dargis. So, Doug, welcome to One Heat Minute. Thank you so much for being Thanks. a part of the show. Thanks for having me. And I have to say, I am staggered that I am here in place of Manola. I <laughs> revere her. She is my favorite of the you know mainstream. I, that's not it's where she appears. It's not what she is. But she's my favorite of all of the daily reviewers yes. currently writing. I agree. And has she, been for a long time. And I love her book on L.A. Confidential. Yes, 100% agree on both of those things. And I thought I would just throw it out there um, uh, for folks because I remember at one point, I can't remember, you know, it's this show is so sprawling. I can't remember if I made her promise uh-huh. she'd be back on in 30 episodes time in the, in the you 89th did. episode. Yeah, well, if I did. I then... <laughs> just heard it a couple of days ago. <laughs> and if I did, I'm sorry, I've broken my promise. Um, Manola hey, said it's her to... fault, not yours. And Manola, it's her fault. Manola said to me, Blake, uh, right at the very first episode, even when I said to come back a second time, at the end of the second one, she said, Blake, I don't know if I've got anything else to say about hate. She mm. came back for a whole other episode, so we were lucky. Um, but and, that's enough about. And guess who- what happened? She had a whole other half hour <laughs> of stuff to say because oh. this movie is so rich, so rich in associations. That's amazing. This is a great minute to talk through. There's a it's a it's a transitional moment in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, there's characters that are backed into corners and having to sort of pivot on a dime where they are mm. in, in the landscape. Um, it's. Uh, for those of you watching, we're going by the uh, – this would be the, exactly at the um, hour and 59-minute mark um, if you're watching on your, mm. your standard for the hun- um, for the 120th minute. Um, and it is the original theatrical release of Heat, not the director's definitive edition, but this mm. is the okay. sprawling 170-odd minute, including – you know, 170 minutes, which includes the credits. Um, uh, so this is where we're at now. Doug and I are going to watch this minute together. And then we're going to come and unpack it and firstly dive through this minute, this 
uh, desperate act of mercy from Danny Trejo, the broken Danny Trejo with his yes. with his uh, halo of blood. And then we're going to just explore where it takes us. So if you guys can have a listen, Doug and I are going to come back and have a chat about it in just a sec. Hillside Terrace, Encino, 10725. 10725. Okay, Chris. This is me, my place. Next, Wayne Grove, okay? You got the time. I'll make time. And I need a new outlay on. Doug, there it is. Yes. I will make time. <laughs> I will make time. The focus that he has in that moment of just like I'm doing this and I'm going to do that and I'm going to do this, it's it, it's amazing. Yeah, he's a – I love the – there's, you know, of so many things that I love in this minute, the craft of that really great sort of pulsating electronic score that comes mm-hmm. in and you see – the the front of his car which for me like for some reason looks like i don't know some kind of digital panther or something like that emerging like bursting out of the lights <laughs> that's behind it and so when he's in there he's like this machine but it's like a hunting machine so it's that got mm-hmm. that very you know um you know gritty sort of terminator vibe in this moment and the score is helping um, um it's helping with that and he's he's just intent gimme van yeah. zant he's going to be punished first and Wayne Grow will make time for him. And uh, this is the first of two moments where he goes into a house and shoots, uh, kills a guy in it. Yes. But for completely different reasons. One, yeah. a moment of mercy. And the other one, hey, you don't know I have the answer to my question? Fuck you. I'm going <laughs> to kill you right now. And I hate to jump ahead a minute, but also the when he shoots uh, – uh, Van Zant. Van Zant doesn't know who the hell he is. No. He just shoot unless he's seen a picture of him, and we don't know that. But he shatters the window, confronts him, and says, Where's Wayne Grow? And Van Zant says, How the hell should I know? <laughs> Wrong answer. And he doesn't even know who's <laughs> killing them. I think. That's my theory. Yeah, I, I think he knows. I think he knows that it's Neil. And I, what I think is I think that that's what's great about Fickner's performance in that moment, skipping ahead, is that Mm-hmm. He's so helpless. He's like exhausted. He's like, how the hell should like I, everything about the way that, that that line drips out of his face is just like, how the hell should I know? <laughs> like, he he doesn't belong in this world. He's watching. Um, in an upcoming episode, what? I talk about how incongruous it is that he's an LA guy sitting there watching hockey in a tracksuit. You know, exactly. It's just, it's, yes, it's, it's it's all of those things. But I I I think in this moment, at the beginning of this moment, it's the it's the co- <clears throat> it's a complete gear shift over two like just under two minutes uh, in the movie where it's Mm -hmm. complete hostility and aggression to trejo feeling like he's the he's the leak because there's no way that anyone else could have the information and he's right 
But who wasn't he, there? Who wasn't Which one there? wasn't there? Who wasn't there? And so he's right. But in this moment, watching the great uh, upshot of De Niro's face, the light panning on his face, mm-hmm. and the, the realization emerging that we've seen in the preceding minute and then into this minute, he's you know the plan has changed. You know he's now got two targets that he needs to put down because things are out of order in his world. And now mm-hmm. he's got an act of mercy because he's still got this loose, this loose end with Treo, and he's going to either leave him to be dead. You know, he, he sort of in vain says, "I'll get a medic," and Treo yes. says, yeah. "No, no way." But uh, um, when when he, yeah, that transitional when he's looking down at him, he was so mad going into the building, into the apartment, and then in this in our minute. That looking, the editing of that sequence is so precise. Looking down, then from the side, then looking. It's just, it's one of those things that make you appreciate how invisible the art of editing is in telling you, positioning you, so you can understand uh, the emotions of the people that the that the characters are experiencing while it's happening, and speaking with great clarity to you, the viewer. I don't think I'm making that very clear, but no, no, you it's, are. It's it's what we're saying here is in in what is re- relatively speaking in terms of like um, uh, craft and difficulty. It's a two shot, so it's you know as mm-hmm. as far as most most you know any filmmaker worth their salt is you know a very very easily throwing a two shot because it's dialogue, it's exposition, it's people talking. But the the very distinct reason that it's so powerful at the beginning of this minute. And even as it evolves into a conversation between Neil and Nate, um, the the power is very clearly articulated on the screen. Like Treo is already mm-hmm. helpless, and we can see that, um, and he's a figure that's slipping away. And Neil is the, the powerful but helpless because he's he's utter power, and there's not terror or fear under him. It's just this calm and detachment. And so, mm-hmm. in in I think what you're you're totally right is that like it is just a two shot, but there's this beautiful clarity of all of the emotions that are rippling through Neil are really enhancing that power struggle. Like there's no sorry, there's no power struggle. It's just powerful and helplessness. Right, right, right. And because he can barely even you know carry a word, essentially he's slipping away. It's it's making Neil like you know scramble for information. What Vance? Who who? Zant, Van Zant, yeah. like you know, the the realization is just so it's so uh, crisp and exactly to your that point. Those so two, those separate cases had suddenly come together. <laughs> I know. And <laughs> what the fuck? And what, what's also <laughs> that, interesting that is literally here is the that look on his face. What the fuck? Like, the, the, this the movie, fuck? I think, at the time that it came out, had a little bit of problem with cross cutting. Yes, because I remember distinctly people being so disappointed. That when finally the great you've discussed this before, but when the great scene occurs when De Niro and Pacino speak to each other, mm. they are it's over the shoulder yes. stuff, not profile shots. And people it's like, were they even in the same room? Well, we now know that they were because there's shots of them on the set. But I just uh, you you know this, but um uh, Michael Mann said in an interview that, yeah, we shot it all these different ways. and But in the editing room, we had to go from one to the other because any time we stood back to show them in a, you know, together in profile in the frame, it sapped the energy of yes. their intensity. And I think 
The same principle probably applies here. You want to keep the two of them separate looking at each other yes. because then we're the most intimate with them right in their face. We're not stepping, we're not stepped back against our will looking at a, 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 the profile shots. No, and I, I think you nailed it again with intimacy is so key in this scene, especially because, mm-hmm. you know, we come into this scene at its conclusion, you know, the intimacy, intimacy is ending and, and Treo's letting go. And it's all the more sort of brutal and calculating, but also, you know, merciful from Neil is that it's only because we've been up close and personal, watch these realizations, watch him attempt to in sort of impose himself on Treo and then slowly retreat and retreat and retreat mm, and retract. Yeah. And it's, it's that then going, Oh, I'll just get a medic. Like you're, you're, you're dead yeah. man walking essentially. Um, and he's like, no, please Neil, like uh, they took Anna. I've got nothing left. Yeah. Boy, that's really sad. It is. There's many That's sad the, moments in, the, especially as we're on the downhill slope of this movie. Oh, it I know. It's just tragedy like, after tragedy. Breed, I, I can't. I'm having Breed, uh, the um, Don and Braden, Dennis Haysbert character Haysbert's and character. his wife or girlfriend. Yes, that little arc. And what's beautiful about that? Again, I, I'm sorry to stray away from the moment, but it, it seems to apply. We don't know even who they. Why we're watching them. Yes. At first, until finally they come together in that one scene in the diner, and then the tragedy ensues, and the sadness of the scene. There are so many moments in this movie where we see the women to the side. Like, uh, I, I, when I watched it a couple of days ago, I saw this 30 seconds that I don't think I'd ever even felt I'd seen before, which is um, Edie taking books out of a box in the store, yeah. followed immediately by Charlene playing with her kid. Yep. And I couldn't, I'd never remembered seeing that. It got, but then now, now, now we have um, Dennis Haysbert's wife seen on the TV. Just, she's been so supportive. Uh, it's, uh, it's so sad, you know. Yeah, he's the, tra- I, I, he's the tragic figure. I feel like the guys in uh, When Harry Met Sally who weep <laughs> over how, you know, the guy, uh, Trini Lopez dies in Dirty Dozen uh, because there's, the, these men have their lives and their emotions, and the women around them are s- so supportive. They argue with them, and then just stuff gets out of control. Anyway, it's poignant in a way that it's really hard to communicate. Yeah, and, in and, words and, and for me, and, and and the poignancy is not lost in this moment. It's like in this moment, mm-hmm. Anna is gone, and the and the the brutality of the way that she went. And, oh, and, God. and Neil, Neil just immediately he just he just turns that off. Like I think that that's something that is worth is worth mentioning in this scene is that he's had to turn off Anna and and even Treo in his unbelievably like you call it like a catatonic state like he's not even really mm-hmm. conscious. Um, he can't feel his body. He can't feel his entire body, and he's there. And and the unforgettable last images of Anna. He's like, just kill me. Like yeah. I'm already like. I'm already dead. We don't see her, do we? Because I think that that was one of the For reasons. For a flash, just, we see her. Just, yeah. We see her heel. We see her heel with a couple of. Mm, we okay. see an arc of blood spatter on the wall, on the wall in the preceding okay. minute, and it's right. and it's it's the most manhunter reminiscent shot in the mm-hmm. film. Um, because exactly. Oh, in, good. In this minute. There's a great switch in perspective. So 
we walk into the house in the preceding minute for those of you guys who are listening to this is your, if this is your first one heat minute uh, one heat minute episode <laughs> welcome and you have a lot to catch up on um but um, <laughs> um uh, in the pre- in previous minute with uh, Jordan Harper we talked about there's a um it comes into the house with a frantic subjective um a handheld camera um mm. uh, oh sorry actually I spoke about it with Vashi Nedimansky the editor it's this frantic um handheld camera that is 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 almost mirroring the mood of neil he's frantic he's darting around corners and he's not quite got the geography of the place he's just he's he's organically yeah. moving through the home and when he we, the camera then cuts it, it cuts to an anchored shot where um where anna's heels are in frame blood is spattered on the wall and you see neil in the doorway notice that and it's sort of not okay. quite dual focus it's not it hasn't got a dual focus lens on it so you sort of right. see him in blur crisp enough to know that he's a realization moment and then a very steady swift handy cam yeah. follows him all the way to the other end of the house where treo is and so in that moment he's like he kind of he he lets it go past and similarly here you know the last moments where he's like neil you know give me show me mercy the camera does that almost gives us mercy as the audience and does a, a yes. focus pull away and blurs it and, and then focuses into the into the outside world and then and then that echoes with a beautiful little cut to the outside of the house where we just see yeah. the muzzle flash from outside the window. Well, I wanted to hark back to your discussion with Manola about the prostitute death mm. trend of those films and I agree mm. completely with her. However, I think there is a slight justification for that shot of the of the sad dead hooker. Yes. In that once we've seen that at that minute, we don't need to see Anna. Oh no, I agree. We know exactly what could couldn't agree more, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And so he's sparing us that thing as he spares us really a lot of stuff in the second half. He had to do that then in order for him to not do that now. Yes. If that makes sense. Yeah, we know we know what Wango is capable of after that bin scene. And I think you're so right, it's like uh, one of the pleasures of this show is really mapping out the threads of when you see certain characters on screen and what their arc is on the screen. And like Wayne Grow throughout this movie, it, you know, he's this weird, like f- he's floating on an, in another plane, another, yeah. he, he's floating in another plane. So he's like doing these heinous things. And they just mean absolutely <laughs> nothing to him. Like they just mean nothing. Like he's just murdering prostitutes. He's doing this. He's rolling the dice with relationships and it just means nothing. He's just he'll pivot to the next thing. That is why I am here. <laughs> that is. And why. I'd like to talk about Danny Trejo, who I think I'd probably seen in a few movies before 1995, but then like so many cast members of this movie, he went on to, really big things. I mean, he is a beloved figure in cinema now. And this is a great death scene. And where did he get it? He must have (laughs) killed somebody and saw him die and said, Oh, I can use that in my next movie. It's because it's so powerful. It's it's powerful. It's, it's, it's a, it's a performance that, um, you know, like it stands at the top of any of his performances, such mm-hmm. a quiet, like he's, he's a beloved character because people utilize him for his like natural physical presence and talent. Like he's got this, he's got the, the best, one of the most, you know, he's like a car- living caricature of a face, like the, the mean, nasty <laughs> dude. Like, and, and uh, I mean that uh, with the most, you know, with the most um, sincere love. It's like, he's got oh, the perfect, absolutely. 
It's got the perfect bad guy or good bad guy face. Like it's just the perfect face when he scrunches it up. His brow furrows. He looks perfect. He's just perfect. And so in this, to take away his tools of not really using his face, being all mm-hmm. all, oh, all, all, all all bunched up with this restrictive makeup and his iconic voice being broken down into a crackle and a whisper, that's what I think is the elevating the elevating scenario of his performance and probably why it stands so tall in all of his other in his entire body of work. It's because in in this in these restrictions and these shackles, he has to deliver mm-hmm. something that's pretty pretty special and heartfelt. And um, yeah, that's what that's how I feel about it. All through the movie, I just I I, I hate having this kind of godly perspective on it. I like to just be in the movie, but in retrospection, I always feel how wonderful his line deliveries are. Yes. Like even just a few minutes before this, when he's on the phone and he says, "You know, I I." The last thing I want to do is disappoint you. And it's so much better in this version than it is in the L.A. Takedown hyphen third draft script version where he actually comes in person and says it. And Neil, like, rips him a new one and says, well, what do you think you're doing? You're disappointing me. And this is so much better. It's so much more because it gives him one last chance to say, I love this guy. And I hate having to do this. And that adds to this moment, this minute that we're talking about where he is just so sorry <laughs> that, he, yes. that it came to this. It, it's it's so poignant. Yes. And he's, you know, he's like, and his line delivery too, I, I, I'm just encouraging people in your daily lives, if you throw a heat dialogue in, it's fun. Like, it's <laughs> just fun. So, like, anytime that someone's like, you know, so you could be riding in traffic and someone's just, you know, like really close to you in traffic and just like they're on me like a cheap suit. Like there's nothing better than a Danny Trejo line from Heat. You know, this guy's on me like a cheap suit. Like just it's so good to say. Uh-huh. It's so fun. And um, and it, like even if you're at a bar and someone's like scrunched up against you and you in a line, like, you know, say it to your friend next to you, make them laugh, do yourself a favor. But just, you know, speaking of that perfect line delivery, it's like there's there's – it's so hard to divorce and I know you you have the same trouble Doug in our chats it's like it's so hard to divorce myself from the person who's never seen this movie to the person who's examined it to death to mm. think about the meaning of like to, 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 to try and take myself back to when I didn't know yes I, I didn't know that Treo like because obviously we saw there were some machinations in the background and I didn't you, you don't quite know if Treo's complicit and there's like a little tiny question mark um, yeah. the first time you watch it and I'm trying to think back is like God, did Treo do something? And then it's so kind of quickly extinguished that it's gone. And then forever you're like, oh, the tragedy of Treo. But that's like a mm-hmm. second viewing, second helping and beyond thing where exactly. you kind of ruminate in it and you're like, God, this guy, you know, the fallout of this, the fallout of a couple of Neil deferrals, like I'm going to defer from killing this guy who yes. has slighted us. Um, it yes, just excellent. It has this exponential rings of disaster for everyone in this entire But crew. there's also a, de- a deferral, so to speak, if I can borrow that word for a second, yeah, uh, on the part of man himself to say, I'm not going to, when I, in draft three, I spell it out for you, but you know what? Let me just let you figure it out because I'm already up to three hours here. And <laughs> yes. this little bit I can take out that will just make the story go a little faster, but also give you something to puzzle about. Just to add a little bit of ambiguity will be good for you. 
And it's better like, for the character. It's better for Neil. It's better for us yes. to read what happens on Neil's face. And also, exactly. Vincent, Vincent's scene with Hugh Benny does all the heavy lifting for us as far as exposition and like anchoring mm-hmm. us back to narrative. Like we know what's happening after they realize it. And and I think that they, the editors, the amazing team of editors as part of the, you know, as part of this film, started to get the propulsive motion of like we are literally downslope. You need to speed mm-hmm. up and you need to watch the echoes of what's happening with this crew and cops mm. and and feel it just conveyed in whatever Vincent and Neil are doing. Like it just needs yeah. to be on those guys' faces and in those guys' experiences and we're just learning bit by bit, trying to catch them, trying to catch a lead um, because it feels like they're coming closer together. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, I haven't heard the parts of the podcast where you talk about Hugh Benny, but uh, there's such a difference between his character in draft three and well, I don't think he even appears on LA takedown. I can't remember no, right off the he's, top. I don't think he's a prom as prominent a character. Yeah. Hugh Rawlings. I mean, uh, Henry Hen- Rawlings playing him is such a weird shift from <laughs> the character in the script where he's just this portly weird accountant who is an assistant. And, uh, when, when, when we were first talking about this, I thought I was going to be, be doing the, the uh, Fichter, uh, a Fichter minute. So I would like to share my Fichter feelings please, for just please. 30 or 40 seconds. Please. And, and what, is, what I want to say is just I definitely want to go back to the contrast of like a portly accountant versus a guy who thinks he's really <laughs> tough, who thinks he's oh, really tough and yeah. finds out that he's not <laughs> in the context of this tough. movie. Yes. Absolutely. Well, and it's interesting to see him and and uh, Fichter together. I, I mean, I love all these people. William Fichter, what I love about him in this movie is the way he uses his hands. Mm. And it's like he, he's swinging past Henry Rollins and he just this little two-fingered, you know, walk with me thing. Mm. And then uh, later when uh, Neil has called him and he gets a number and he just holds that number out on a post-it, not even looking, you know. He, uh, Benny is supposed to come up, take it, and call it, because and and that, and it's those those little moments that capture the arrogance of Van Zandt, this oh, guy, this cushioned, protected guy who thinks he runs the world, and and then referring back to uh, what you said earlier about how he's just like t- totally taken aback by what's happening to him. At one point, he says, "Who are these people? <laughs> yes. you know, what, what am I dealing with here?" He did. He had no idea what was coming down the road at him, and that, the, the drive-in should have told him, but he didn't take the message. He didn't take the message, and I think that that's what's great is that Van Zant. You talked about it. There's a there's this sort of white collar crime, insulated, mm-hmm. um, yuppie sort of uh, uh, elitism that he has, which is so perfect. And, you know, Fickner at the time, he's got that great jawline. He's got a, a great face mm-hmm. and eyes. He can sort of furrow his brows to sort mm-hmm. of feel like he's dismissive, but he's not doing, mm-hmm. he's not overacting. It's not, it's not, he's got a very oh, expressive yeah. tool. And, and then you see with Rollins, I think the great thing about it is he thinks that he's insulating himself, um, further from like criminal activity because he's got a guy like Hugh Benny. He's like, oh, this guy's a tough guy. I- I'm not going to ever get my hands dirty. I'm going to give him this post and mm-hmm. I'm going to hand it to him like it's someone that's l- beneath me and act in that way. And what's great is I- uh, the thing I love about the- one of my favorite scenes in the film is the Wayne Grow propositioning that, you know, be- being the olive branch to Van Zandt about going, yes, uh-huh. I can take Daniel. You know, we've done major scores what? together. I can sort him out. 
and it's, where he it, totally lies about his background. Lies completely, and, beautifully. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's just the most duplicitous thing, but it's so great because <laughs> Fickner has no choice but to believe him. And mm-hmm. he looks to Cubeni, and then he looks at Wangro, and there's a look that he looks to Cubeni like, you're not the guy, you're not the kind of guy that I thought you were. Like, you're not this supremely tough guy who can get it, get me out of any jam with criminals. You're just another schmuck. Like, these guys are a completely other level. So I think it's just it's like... Oh, good one, yeah. It's, it's that... It's that um, He's, he's looking at Wengro. That's the guy that he thought Hugh Benny was. Yes. In that moment, he's like, that's the guy I wish you were. You knew hardcore <laughs> criminals. You had contacts. I'm paying you a lot of money to sort of to, to keep me safe from these sorts of messes, uh-huh. even though I'm, you know, I'm tinkering on the edges. And, and now he's just about to get dragged under. And it's just um, – and, and, and Kevin Gage is – incredible performance as Wangro. He's like licking his lips. He just can't wait. <laughs> He's like, nom, 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 I'm going to eat you yeah. up. You are nothing. That's funny. Um, and uh, it's just a delight to him because he can just yeah. tell any lie. They can't fact check it. What are they going to do? Hugh Benny doesn't know any any better. And now, uh, it's great. I, I don't, I feel like I don't, I, I, I want to jump ahead to John Voigt before we that. run out of time because he's the second half of this minute. And, I have to say that ever since I've seen this movie, I walk like John Voight. <laughs> my back is stiff and my shoulders, and I don't turn my head. I, I, I don't turn my head. I turn my shoulders with my head like I, like I have some kind of disability. <laughs> and in, in this particular scene, you know, the, in, the, in the third draft, more happens to him than we see here. And I'm, I don't miss it from the movie itself, but... Just the just to have this great actor from Midnight Cowboy consent to do what is basically a character scene, mm. uh, and, and he only appears in three to four moments throughout the movie, I think, um, and and to be perfect in every single one of them, and to also convey his complete loyalty to Neil, especially in this phone call, yes, where. Neil wants this, and Neil wants that, and he says, "You got a brother." Uh, he knows. He know. It, it's it's one of those great things where y- you touched on it, and I've said it a couple of times in the podcast, but I just love to reiterate for folks: is like uh-huh. the, for, for, for this for this in, entire reason is that John Voight as a character actor, you're like, oh, this is a huge movie star. Why is a huge movie star deciding to be, you know, in Michael Mann movies, why do huge movie stars just come in and play bit parts along other actors? And that's sort of, you know, Bonnie Timmerman, who's the casting director, is one of the great casting mm-hmm. directors in Hollywood. And Absolutely. And John Voight read this and goes, this is based off Eddie Bunker, the guy who wrote the incredible mm-hmm. book, oh. No Beast So Fierce. Yeah. And he read it and he's like, why don't you just get the guy? Michael, why don't you just get the guy, Eddie Bunker, who is actually in Uh Reservoir Dogs. Right. Why don't you get the guy to play this role? Because that's the role. And Michael Mann said something which, you know, for us, capital R romantics like Michael Mann. He goes, because then we won't get to work together. (laughs) It was literally that. They're friends. He's like, I really want to work with you. So this is, I think think this is a great role for you because, you know, De Niro being a powerhouse, it's great to have a confidant who, you know, feels fraternal um and so you know eddie bunker if you've seen him as a shorter guy more diminutive like there's a great mm-hmm. relationship there's a great strength between and brotherly strength that kind of works perfectly in the physically like the scenes that they're physically together and then once they're talking on the phone or oh, catching yeah. up, it, it just works so yeah here, I see that. here they already kind of get the feeling that van Sant's involved 
you know, give me the address that's already on hand, I think, probably from uh, previous betrayals. And then the right. Wayne Grow. He, Nate is always warning Neil. Are you sure you got time? <laughs> yeah, that's right. I'll make time. I'll yeah, make time. and uh, in the movie version, he is Wayne Grow is being protected by the cops, which makes for a much more exciting climax. Uh, L.A. Takedown ends disappointingly in that Wayne Grow actually kills. Yeah. The Neil Macaulay character shooting him through the door. The screenplay has the third draft anyway has uh, still has Wayne Grow just out on his own. But the genius of Michael Mann or who and his collaborators to to to, to put him in to give him police protection to even more accentuate how vile this guy is mm. that he's just he'll play Van Zant and now he's playing the cops and you know he just thinks he's a survivor but he isn't because he hasn't met neil mccauley yet no and and i just love and for all folks you know sorry to jump ahead but isn't it all the more tantalizing that not only do the police give him protection but they put him in a hotel so close to the airport it's just that impossible <laughs> like it's it's literally like what's your favorite food like if your favorite vice for food was like choc chip ice cream or something like that and someone just literally waves a big bowl with a spoon <laughs> under your nose like it's and the gym is in front of you and right under your nose is that ice cream like it's that impossible thing that you just can't you can't get away from in that moment it's like oh my well, god i need to satiate great- this this desire Well, one of the great things about the screenplay is that everything is motivated. Mm. And so when uh, Neil and Edie are driving down the freeway to the airport, I think he realizes Wayne Grow is right there. Mm -hmm. And then he says, oh, I I got something to do. Uh, Just just a quick errand, nothing big. Let me just pull in this parking lot. So, I like your so version. Was, I like your version, like Hollywood. Uh, but, oh, I just gotta, I just gotta go down here. I just got narrow. <laughs> well, he's trying to not to alarm her because uh, yeah. he knows he can get in there and do the job and get out. But mm. Doesn't go all that well. But the point is that man realizes at some point I gotta, I gotta give De Niro a reason for why he's doing this, mm. and the reason is. Wayne Grow happens to be in the hotel next to the airport. So close. So that the hero can work through his process. Anyway, that's my theory. That's a great theory. I just came up with it 30 seconds ago, so the, it may the, be wrong. That's the theory. That's the theory. That's a, the, the definitive <laughs> theory for this show, this episode, in, a, in any event. Um, yeah, I just I, – I, I, love, I love the contrast in this minute, the warmth of the bar. Everything's very warm. Nate is like yeah. at home, and, and there's this hostility in this industrial environment. It's the most abstract – night shots you know lots of you mm-hmm. know implacable in, in lights we're not in the you know the navig you know the the regularly navigated la landscape that we see later in collateral we see yeah. lights everywhere we see this car going down a road and 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 the echoes of this again when when the score is sparing and it and it does it's it's an ambivalent score and um, but when it when it comes in and it kicks with motion and even just sort of electronic with some sort of drum big propulsive drum sounds it's like Mm -hmm. all right this is again momentum 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 we're coming we're bringing forces together and um and you know vincent's inclination um that you know that neil's gonna disappear as he as he comes up in in forthcoming minutes is you know we can start believing it we can really start believing that that's what's gonna happen Mm -hmm. and this this music 
it really works on you. Mm. Uh, you're aware of it and not aware of it at the same time, but it always has that undertone of this absolute, uh, not just momentum, as you say, but also this tension of what is uh, what is going to happen next? Yes. Well, I, that's kind of a dull, banal thing to say, but uh, it's always there. It's always kind of scaring you, undercutting the placidity of this big city. Yeah, there's and earlier in the movie, I think that man creates space, like, uh, and uses the the sprawl for for sort of mm. to pause. So because it is dense and there are a lot of characters and a lot of things happening, when those uh-huh. insular character moments, they they sort of pause. But now when there's motion, it's frantic. We're going from one location yeah. to another. We're getting a lot of different moods. We're getting a lot of, a lot of different energies, and and we're we're sort of skip skipping across the map all over the place. And and now the landscape is really part of whatever we're seeing. So like you know here we're skipping bang bang bang. We're on one side of the rim. We're then in, in, in a sort of nameless industrial area. Then off to Encino to get Van Zant. Nate's in his little his little dive <laughs> bar where he's running things, you know, for Neil and getting things all organized and making sure that Chris is on the boil and the cops are after Hugh Benny. And it's just oh, it's man, frantic. Yeah. There's a lot's happening. There's a lot is going on here. This is this is kind of the equivalent of the that. The Goodfellas cocaine scene, where <laughs> yes. everything is happening at once. Yes, and there's total paranoia, and helicopters are scaring the shit out of him. And then that <laughs> moment of complete, when he's arrested, and it's just like, boom, calm. It's all over, and now we can date. But uh, oh, it, it's it's I, just, I love this granular approach to heat, and what the testimony of this podcast series is to how well the movie stands up to it It you know it's i've I've had a couple of conversations and thank you so much for saying that i've had a couple of conversations with people who've done podcast episodes earlier and then have mm -hmm. been coming back and they go how do you still have energy and i said well now you know just to, to, to look behind the curtain slightly you guys are listening today to the 120th episode for Douglas and I, there's about, with a few bonus episodes, there's about 124 released episodes so far and recorded are probably about 130 or so um, mm. episodes. And I can unequivocally say that I have not seen a minute that didn't thrill me, that didn't excite <laughs> me, that didn't have really fascinating, um, uh, something fascinating in it or some piece of craftsmanship Absolutely. that is just, that feels like it's forgotten. Like just the, you know, not, not underplaying and overplaying great performances, really clever ways to elevate or to emit things, to make you think about them just mm-hmm. in every scene, whether it's a silent scene or something, like, there's been something there and it sort of kicked off in those opening minutes of the show. And, and, and in every subsequent minute, I've been excited um, and refreshed yeah. by the new guest um, or, or mm-hmm. a returning guest to talk through another element, another ingredient of this like concoction that just, you know, for all of the things that you say about it shouldn't have worked. Like you shouldn't be able to make, you know, a 170 minute sprawling crime epic <laughs> with 70 speaking parts um, that can be <laughs> elevated like this and have these two, you know, this great sort of hero and villain relationship where mm. every time either one of them's on screen, you're with them. doesn't matter. Um, and you know, there's, oh, it, right. it, it, sh- it shouldn't, it shouldn't work. There's many reasons why it shouldn't work, but it, that's part of the beguiling, awesome quality that it does work. <laughs> well, it's a delight talking about it. I mean, this is the sort of thing that when I, when I did that kill bill book, 
that was an attempt at doing this. Well, it was really, the Kill Bill book is just trying to tell people all the references yes. that Tarantino was using. And I, I got a lot of them right, some of them wrong, and missed a, a lot. Uh, it, that movie might hold up to this kind of granular moment-by-moment uh, moment analysis. They're, they're, the only way to find out is to try it. But, <laughs> but, but that's a, that, that movie is more cartoony. This one holds up because these are real people in a realistic setting. Man, I think, wanted to make something that was totally plausible hmm. and achieves that in this. And it took 170 minutes to do it because they had to explore not just the the main characters, but build up those subsidiary characters like Hank Azaria and some of the others who even Torino yes. makes. <laughs> he's memorable. He's amazing. I love him. Ugh. By the time I get to Phoenix, we'll be rising. <laughs> I can't. Yeah, ever- this is. As as um, as Manola said, this is uh, hoo ha, Pacino. <laughs> yes, you know this is that phase where he and and some of his line readings, also um, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Yes, some of his line readings in that I just I still use them to this day. <laughs> like when he says to Mel to to, uh, to Ed Harris, "You are fucked up." I always say that. That's always the way I say that sentence. <laughs> That's the only way to say it from now on. That's the exactly. And if I ever hear Phoenix, I have to sing that song. Look, guys, <laughs> thank you so much for being a part um, of another episode of One Eight Minute Doug. Thank you so much for being a part of the show and reaching out. It's been an absolute pleasure. Um, where I is you. the best? It's where been is, exciting. is so right now? The best place is allclassical.org. Is that the best place for people to find you? No, it, now these days it's Kabu Kabu dot FM Kabu dot FM. Yeah. They canceled our podcast oh. at uh, Classical, so, so we moved over to another radio station. Kboo.fm. I'll make sure I put the links up in the episode uh, description Good. so you can check it out on your podcast app. Um, thank you so much for being a part of the show and reaching out and uh, your You're love with. and You're passion. Thank you. thank you for bringing that granular uh, script <laughs> comparison analysis that we need oh, um, every now and then, um, especially in the drafts because I think what's really exciting is people think that with a clinical with the clinical preparation that you have writing a script, especially something that's been developed over many years, that mm-hmm. people can't admit things that need to be admitted, like in the in the doing, in the editing, you're telling exactly. you're retelling the story. And I think it's really cool to go, you know, this is like the beauty of deleted scenes of like, yeah. oh, it's cool yeah. to see it. But um but people are like, uh, I think Werner Herzog said that great quote. Uh, <laughs> um uh, they're like, Werner, your, your DVDs never have any deleted scenes. And Werner, I believe, <laughs> said something like, would you ask a sculptor to present his shavings? Um, <laughs> which I think I think is perfect, right? So it's good for us to analyze in the show. But uh, there. look, guys, thank you so much. Doug, again, once again, thank oh, you so much. Wait a second. I got one. I got a quote to throw at you. Please. Uh, to counter, to, to compliment Herzog, and that is, the great Don Siegel, who's one of the great editors turned directors, he said, hey, you shake a movie and 10 minutes are going to fall out. <laughs> oh, there have been so many great editors on this show who are listening will yeah. love that. Will love that. Thank you. Guys. You're welcome. Uh, this, is, this has been great. Doug, thank you so much. Garth Franklin is our web design master. Thank you for that, Garth. Paul Davies is the man who does our theme. Thank you, Mr. Davies. And uh, I've been Blake Howard. OneHeatMinute.com if you want to find out anything about the show. Mail at OneHeatMinute if you've got anything. Flick us an email. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm at BlakeIsBatman on Twitter, and uh, we'll catch you on another episode of One Heat Minute just around the corner. And, you know, if you're running out of time to listen to the show, make time. <laughs>